0: You're listening to episode 76, Fertile Minds Radio, and I'm your host, Hilary talbot Rowland.
1: I have to say that the more we know about sort of transcriptomics, genomics, metabolomics, and epigenetics, the deeper we dive into the genetics of, of infertility and sperm, the more that the most basic things matter, like lifestyle choices, diet, and things like that. It's remarkable it's just remarkable because when i entered the field we couldn't explain a lot of male infertility it was really unexplained about half of it and then the y chromosome was found has to have deletions by Rael opera, and all of a sudden 7 to 10% of infertility is explainable so one region of a chromosome and all of a sudden 10% of the field has an explanation so that you know the impact of genetics was clear to me that it's going to be large And then now we're learning that even in unexplained cases, epigenetic issues loom large, and it's probably more male than you think.
0: If you are looking for holistic wisdom and a plan to reclaim your fertility to help you create a healthy family for generations to come, you're in the right place. This is Fertile Minds Radio, and that excerpt was an interview with Dr. Paul Turek we did last year. To date, I think it's one of the most important episodes we've done because it really gets into specifics about the rather elusive subject of male fertility. We originally entitled that episode, Is IVF Good for Men's Health? because we were joking before recording that it might be one of the only times a male goes to the doctor. If you are one of the many that has had issue getting your man to the doctor, I invite you and your partner to listen to this refurbished episode. Dr. Turk is a wealth of knowledge and a guy's guy. I would say on average, I refer a male client to him weekly to work with him virtually for a second opinion to what exactly is going on with his reproductive health. So grab your partner and have a listen, because after all, it still takes two to tango. Dr. Turk is actually a world-renowned reproductive urologist. He's probably one of the top three urologists in the world. He has clinics in San Francisco and Beverly Hills. He advises the ABORN board that I'm a fellow of. graduate of both Yale and Stanford University. He's taught at Yosan University, and he has countless studies that he's both authored and advised. And aside from being a Western medical doctor that really gets complementary medicine like Chinese medicine, he's a soulful clinician. He manages to connect with one of the most difficult patient populations, dudes that don't want to talk about their potential fertility issues. The first time that I heard him speak at the International Infertility Symposium in Vancouver, I was blown away. He was so intelligent and generous with his ideas and research that he was really the first person that made male fertility issues relatable to me. For three years running, he was one of my favorite speakers, and since I wasn't able to attend this year, I had to get my fix, and I invited him on the show. So I'm sure that you'll be just as enamored with him as I am by the end of this. His ideas are both provocative and backed by science. So without further ado, welcome to the show, Dr. Turek.
1: Hillary, thank you very much. Who are you talking about?
0: (laughs) (laughs) We need to get you a mirror, right? (laughs) You need to just listen to that intro. I want to meet that guy. (laughs) (laughs) No, truly. I mean, I think that you're your generosity with your ideas is, and they've been, you know, pretty groundbreaking. Decades ago, you've been in this field since the nineties and you're really at the forefront. So I think there's a lot to learn from you.
1: It's interesting. I entered the field because it was a dearth of research. You know, I said, this is a very interesting field, male, male fertility reproductive urology, because it's great surgery so it's microsurgery and you have to have a skill set for that which I found myself drawn to but then I looked at the science in the field and compared to something like oncology there was really very little I mean it's a very young field I'm probably the second generation of person in it you know in terms of its its age but uh it's come along beautifully I think and it's still got a long way to go though
0: yeah I mean it's uh for eons it's always been the woman's fault right (laughs) We never yeah, even looked at the men.
1: And that's an interesting uh, cultural bent. But what happens is women are generally more proactive about their care. And women also have a cycle to judge their health by and men don't. So that's my next 20 years is where where can we get the men's ovulatory cycle? What, what can we replace that with with men that might be just as effective? And is it the semen analysis? Is it waist circumference? The fifth vital sign? Is it testosterone levels, there, there will probably be something coming on board where we can say, hey, and while you're young, be aware that this is where you're headed.
0: Yeah. I mean, I've, I've heard you advocate several times that you know, fertility, semen analysis, you know, waist circumference should all be biomarkers for male health. And yet the semen analysis is pretty archaic,
1: right? It's about 60 years old and it's had several normal ranges that change every 10 or 15 years. And yeah, I'd say among the things I think about when I see men for infertility, it's probably the least important thing, unless of course it's zero, then it becomes the most important thing.
0: Right, and you, you just lectured on this at the symposium and you were relating it in a semen analysis to a deck of cards.
1: Yeah, I'd say the, the blog I wrote, is called Reading Your Cards on Turek blog. Just search Turek on men's health. Dot com or Turk blog on Google and I basically took the four components of a semen analysis and viewed them as cards in your hand in a game of cards and what do they mean independently of each other and what do they mean when you take them as, as a whole. So for instance, count sperm concentration has value, especially if it's not zero but not predictive value because it varies so much. So I showed a graph of a man that was published in our uh, World Health Organization guidelines for semen analyses, fourth edition, that took semen samples every week or twice a week from a man for a year, and they were all over the map. The sperm concentrations were all over the map from zero to normal to high, and they hovered around 20 million or so, but they never really sat there very long. And so you're really looking at a moving target with sperm concentration, because it is a biological process, much unlike a glucose level, you know, so there's a lot of variation up between individuals, there's a lot of individu- each individual varies by season. So if you look at sperm concentrations, they're basically highest in the winter. And I just did a I just did an interview for a magazine about this, that, why are sex drives so high in the spring? And I'd say it's probably because people were, stu- you know, like like bears, we've stopped hibernating and we're looking upward and outward again as opposed to downward. However, sperm counts are highest in the winter and births are highest in, you know, in the summer. And with other animal species, there's a lot of seasonality. Some of them even have ruts where there's no sperm most of the year. And there's only sperm when ovulation occurs once or twice a year, like in walruses and I had a nice, I had a nice paper with Holly Morocco from Six Flags because the walruses coming from the Arctic were in Napa and Vallejo. They weren't reproducing, and she figured out that the female was ovulating once a year, off cycle in the fall, and then and the male was rutting in the spring. So it's incredible. It's an incredible biological process, but very different between men and women. So count alone is you know you have to. It's a moving target. Motility, even worse. And I think of motility as kind of a uh, toxin light like something's going on when the motility is not normal, uh, that's toxic in some way, like pot or social other social habits, alcohol, obesity, things like that. Like if it's not a huge hit, then you get a, count, a motility problem. If it's a larger or longer hit, then you get a count problem. It takes more to knock your count down than it does your motility, and motility recovers faster. Volume is a third one, and that is probably the most significant one for finding something. If someone has a low ejaculate volume, you will certainly find something if you look hard. So, that is one of those set in stone abnormalities. If the volume's high, it's probably meaningless. If the volume's low, you can almost always find something a blockage, something missing, a testosterone problem. Retrograde ejaculation is it's like a list of five things, it'll always be something on that list. So, you know, that's nice to have something, a reference point that matters. And then there's forward progression, which is less re- relevant. But there's also morphology, which I don't give a lot of credence to, which is sperm shape. Because I always think about walking in a bookstore and finding, you know, a book with a really nice cover, and and then not reading it, and bringing it home, and finding out it's not very well written. I think it's morphology is similar to that. So that's sort of dissecting it out. And it, and you know, I kind of held up the semen analysis as a, a cube and sort of walked around it and described what I feel about it. And the bottom line is that it has a little, little relevance to man's fertility. I'd rather know more about his history and physical exam. If the semen analysis shows anything, I mean, a good hot bath will drop you down. And if you do hot baths 20 minutes, three times a week for a month, you'd probably be zero. So really? it would bounce right back. Yeah. So it's pretty sensitive marker of things. That's why I like the biomarker concept. Flu season this year was rough because there were several flus and. They weren't covered. Influenza A wasn't covered well by the vaccine. So I remember seeing men who had. Oh, I was yeah, I was feeling uncomfortable for about a week. Doc, I took a couple of days off I had aches and pains, but I didn't have a I didn't have a fever. But you know, when they have aches and pains, and when they have myalgias, men typically have a low grade fever. So I said, well, let's look at your Seem at zero, right? It's zero, and it was normal two months ago, and it's going to be normal in two months again.
0: Yeah, men are so lucky that way, right? They're they're meant to to bounce back.
1: Yeah. And so the other main concept about the semen analysis is you're meant to run hard. So the semen analysis is not something men say, how can I make, how can I improve my semen analysis or how can I improve my count? You run at full tilt. If everything's healthy, you're running at maximum RPM and all you can do is bring it down. So it's right. So you're given everything. And so that's why it's valuable because if it's running at half speed, you got to look at why. And and usually you can figure it out. When I entered this field, we usually couldn't figure it out, but there were a lot of conceptual differences going on. But I think with the attitude that why isn't his motility normal? And why is his count low? What is going on in his life? What is he eating? What is he doing? What is recreational drug use? What's his lifestyle like? What's his stress like? What's his weight doing? All that stuff matters. And that's really interesting to me. And that That falls in collusion with other things that we're learning about, for instance, epigenetics. So the other point of the talk was that the whole story is not in the semen analysis. You have to dive deeper into sperm and look at more of their function. And the two morphology does that a little bit, but I'm not a real believer in it. Sperm DNA fragmentation is another measure of quality and performance, sort of, and then sperm epigenetics. And now we know, after there's been an assay on the market for about a year or two, that sperm epigenetics is probably the new evolution. That's how we're evolving, and that's what we're handing off to kids. And you can have abnormal expression of markers on your DNA because you're obese, and if you lose weight, those change on sperm and change the quality. So it's quite dynamic, a process. Even on a genetic level or epigenetic level, it's constantly changing. And it makes sense because evolution isn't really a generational thing over a thousand years it's really happening every day and this is the everyday evolution is epigenetic so my mind is very captivated by the deeper dive with sperm which appears to be explaining why a lot of unexplained infertility what the cause is um Because if you look at couples who try for a year and everything looks normal, ostensibly normal, if you dive deeper on sperm, you may find epigenetic issues or sperm fragmentation issues or whatever the next thing might be. But there might not be a next thing because epigenetics appears to be probably the new bottom line, I think.
0: Well, I think, you know, as a TCM practitioner, I feel like I was taught about epigenetics just with different languaging. You know, our our Jing and our essence being affected by our lifestyle, dictating what we pass down. And you know, ten years ago, that seemed like an obscure concept to Westerners. But now, you're saying science is actually proving that, right?
1: Absolutely. I, as an advisor to the epigenetics company, that's my disclosure. I have to say that the more we know about sort of transcriptomics, genomics, metabolomics, and epigenetics, the deeper we dive into the genetics of of infertility and sperm, the more that the most basic things matter, like lifestyle, choices, diet, and things like that. It's remarkable. It's just remarkable because when I entered the field, we didn't know a lot about, we couldn't explain a lot of male infertility. It was really unexplained, about half of it. And then the Y chromosome was found has to have deletions, by renal opera and all of a sudden 7 to 10% of infertility is explainable. So one region of a chromosome and all of a sudden 10% of the field has an explanation. So that you know the impact of genetics was clear to me that it's going to be large. And then now we're learning that even in unexplained cases epigenetic issues loom large and it's probably more male than you think. So it's shifting over from 25% to maybe 50% of unexplained might be male related. And it's not female, so yeah, women might take the hit, but actually, men should take the hit. And then, if you look at the solutions for that, it's going to be how you live your life, and that's what the, that's what Eastern medicine does beautifully. We're terrible in Western medicine at lifestyle. Twelve-minute visits do not get into the details in a medical practice of what how a man lives his life. And I love it because when I get acupuncturist referrals, guy with a low sperm count, I've tried everything for six months. And it's still low. I generally find something anatomical that I can fix, which is pretty interesting because everything else is sorted out. A man's stress is under control, his diet's good, he's got a good balance in life, exercising, and all that stuff's handled. And that's stuff that Western medicine is terrible at. But it all, and so I am a firm believer in the role, the complementary role of Eastern and Western medicine in treating infertility. It's more powerful than ever, and yes, you should hang your hats on epigenetics because that's that's the value to Eastern medicine. Is you're making big changes, and those changes are transmissible to other generations, so they're really important.
0: So, would you describe just so that I'm clear and our listeners are clear? You know, is when you're talking about epigenetics, are you talking about the difference between single gene mutations versus chromosomal gene mutations? Right.
1: So, epigenetics isn't really a mutation story; it's really a it's the marks on your DNA. So it's not mutations. It's not chromosomal. It's if you look, so uh, there's a blog called epigenetics. The reason you are who you are. It's the reason a nose is a nose and an ear is an ear, despite the cells being the same. It's a reason why we're different than bananas, even though we share 50% of the genetic material with a banana. It's a reason why you know individuals are individuals, despite being 99% genetically identical. So it's not explained in the genes themselves. It's explained in which genes are turned on and which are turned off. So which pages in the book can be read and which pages can't be read. If you have different pages that you read differently for each person. So that's epigenetics. It's really the expression and a non-expression of various genes to make different organs and different people and different functions. So we all have the template of, we all have the whole book, but we don't express the whole
0: book. And so the test that you helped develop, that's Episona, right? Yeah.
1: And that test tells you if there's a pattern of epigenetic marks on certain genes, that might explain your semen analysis or your fertility. So it could explain impaired natural fertility. So that might be at home, a timed intercourse would fail or inseminations might fail, IUI. And then there's another part of the test that looks at the sperm dynamics and Interaction with the embryo and it could explain why IVF would fail. So, uh, sperm can be, sperm are a big con- contribution to IVF success. We're not talking about fertilizing an egg, we're talking about post fertilization events. And I call it dissolving embryo syndrome. I have a lot of patients who come in, normal semen analysis normal female evaluation, and go to IVF, and their embryos don't make it in a dish. They just dissolve on day two, three, four, whatever. And I call it dissolving embryo syndrome. And I think epigenetics of sperm, a lot of it drives early embryogenesis, and those genes have to be, the right genes have to be working at the right time. And if they're not, it's a contribution to failure. Before knowing more about sperm epigenetics, we used to think that about 5% of poor embryo development at IVF might be due to sperm issues, and with the development of epigenetics, it's looking like it might be around 45%. So all of a sudden in the last couple of years, the whole new light being shown on sperm quality as a driver of IVF success. And a lot of epigenetics we know is lifestyle mediated. So it's all kind of coming together like the Mediterranean diet for health you know, or paleo. It's sort of that kind of collusion of information. It's all making sense now.
0: Right. So what you were speaking about in terms of the, the dissolving, you know, the embryo, you know, they fertilize this, but then they just kind of implode on themselves. You know, I've heard that oftentimes blamed on DNA fragmentation of the sperm, which would be toxicity, right?
1: Right. Reactive oxygen species and oxidants, right?
0: And so oxidative stress is that that's supposed to be about 30 to 80% of the cause of male infertility, Right. Yeah, that's. I
1: mean, it's hard to prove, but that seems reasonable. But this may be, epigenetics may be a downstream event of oxidative stress. And okay. maybe the epigenetics predispose you to that. So it's going to be related somehow. We don't know that relationship yet. I think that epigenetics will assume the field of oxidative stress or be be a byproduct of it or somehow related to it.
0: Okay, but it's not necessarily DNA fragmentation. That's just one thing that can, like a symptom that can show up, right?
1: Correct. I think that's okay. a downstream event, probably.
0: Okay. So, with that in mind and oxidative stress, and that, you know, men are kind of traditionally not all, but some are poor eaters and, you know, some lifestyle choices. Do you think men should take a prenatal?
1: Absolutely. I mean, the data for prenatals for men, it's sort of pre prenatal, is very strong from the Cochrane reviews. And that was my talk at IFS a couple of years back about should men pre on a prenatal? And they did a, you know, there's there were about twenty studies done using antioxidant supplements in men, and the nice thing was they were controlled, and they used IVF as the uh, result, the IVF findings, and that's as uh, about a controlled situation for pregnancies you can get. <laughs> it's funny, the big complaint when you do natural fertility studies is how do you know that the that the pregnancy is his? <laughs> when you publish a paper, always the question because you can, <laughs> how do you know it's his? Right. Very interesting. I never. It's just an odd criticism from editors, but that's what you get. But having it in an IVF setting is much more controlled. So they showed about a threefold increase in pregnancy rates at IVF and a threefold decrease in miscarriages among women whose partners were taking an antioxidant supplement compared to controls. And published it, I don't know, 2011, and then in Cochrane Reviews. And then they probably didn't believe it, so they did it again with 40 studies. And they came up with the same numbers three years later, maybe 13, 2013. Uh, the criticism of all of it is that garbage in, garbage out. The studies weren't large and well-powered and they were all small, but they all kind of show the same thing. So it may not be the best data, but the government was so taken by this, the NIH, that they started a MOXIE trial, so male antioxidant supplement trial, a couple years back. And I'm, I was on the review committee called the RMN for that, but I'm not now. So I don't know what's happened to that trial. But typically what happens when you try to recruit men to a randomized controlled trial with fertility is it, it, they don't accrue very well. So there's a lot of trouble keeping them in and keep them compliant and getting them to, to join, so I'm not sure what the results are, but that's how impressed the government was that they're saying, "Listen, if you're recommending, if this is, if this data is real, then men should be on a prenatal. If we need to prove that in a prospective trial, because that's a big statement, because women have been on prenatals for 35, 40 years for similar reasons prevent miscarriages and birth defects, um, and it's been very effective. This is probably as effective. It's probably just as important that men be on a prenatal.
0: Yeah, and you, you actually took a step further and developed one of your own how is it different from what a female would take versus a male
1: I, you know it's true it's doses of things like there's a lot of folate related products in female there's some in male um, more antioxidants we have some it's sort of an antioxidant mineral herbal supplement it's organic. And we had an one called, it's called Essential Beginnings XY. We also had one called XX, which is female. The key thing was for both, they were had organic fillers. So you can put a vitamin in anything you want, but your body may not see it. It may not be available to you. Uh, and uh, any vitamin supplement can be put on the market saying, this is in it, but what are you actually seeing? And so we had a cancer nutritionist whose job is to get Nutrients into cancer patients who have terrible digestion and, and habits, and um, you know because of disease. So we used very highly organic fillers that are highly absorbed, and um, had great reviews of it. For instance, the iron in the female prenatal, you know, often upsets women's stomachs uh, because mm-hmm. it's, it you know gets absorbed pretty quickly, and it's kind of iron is heavy on the stomach, and you can get upset. But uh, the natural fillers are a little more slow release, so women were tolerating that a lot better. Uh, with men, we add tribulus and astrologus or maca root. So some of the well established herbals that have the best data. And it was all it's more scientific, I'd say. It's kind of like a smart vitamin.
0: I love that that you added the herbs to it, especially the tribulus and the, the
1: maca. Yeah, and we had alcarnitine and the usual, you know, and coq ten and ubiquitin and things like that. Resveratrol. Stuff that really made sense.
0: And so do you, do you like ubiquinol over CoQ10? Because I know a lot of people look at me and I, I try and have them take the ubiquinol instead of the CoQ10 because it's more cost effective in the pathway before. And all the studies are seemingly done on CoQ10. Yeah,
1: I think that a lot of it depends on absorption. I mean, if you get nothing of one of them, it's the other one's better. So right. you can choose the one you want. It's it's the, how it's delivered that matters, right? You can buy all the gifts you want, but if you don't give them to the person who's it's it's worthless. <laughs> so we're all about delivery. Uh, in fact, the NIH chose our supplement to model their supplement that they were going to provide in the trial uh, because they in, they were impressed with the way it was thought through.
0: Oh, I agree. I mean, it's definitely complex, and what I like most about it is your delivery. You've put all these things together in one pill. Because if you if you start trying to make a man take you know a handful of pills every day, that's going to last maybe three days, right? You've got it in one or two.
1: Well, that's another whole problem is compliance with men. I mean, we're thinking. A chewable is probably really good, but it's too many calories, 35 to 50 calories a pill. You know, great for kids, probably not good for men, but they'd probably eat it and toss it up there, you know, because a lot of these antioxidants are water-soluble. They don't last very long, so you do have to dose twice a day. Uh, It's hard to do anything once a day with antioxidants and get any persistent levels, you know, with A, C, and E, so it's complex. But um, the news is that we've been bought out, and it's probably going to be improved this year, hopefully, and that's all I can tell you. But I'm very excited.
0: That's great. I, that's definitely in line with what I've observed about you and your ability to try and make things as easy as possible on the men. Mm-hmm. You know, your practice model, unless it's changed, it's it's a very lengthy questionnaire, but they only have to see you once, and then the rest is done by phone, right? It's all
1: telehealth. So now I can even do. I'm even starting mobile care where. I will, I won't even require the guy come to the office. So I'm in San Francisco and LA and they're both pretty heavily trafficked cities. And I like the idea of seeing them in IVF programs when they hit the door, because you don't have many opportunities to connect with men ever. So it's just the way the culture is. And so asking them, I mean, it's Amazing that they fill out that questionnaire, but that's so valuable. I mean, you will never gonna, you'll never get the information ever again unless their, you know, their partner says, get in there and get that done and get in to see them. You got one opportunity, so you got to take maximal advantage of it. Once you've got it and you've seen it, get everything you can done and try to make that connection with men because if you don't, will never, you'll never see them again. I mean, I, most of my patients have seen urologists before, can't remember their names. I, I at the simple thing I say to them. I say, I want to give you care that's so good that you'll remember my name.
0: I think that's great. And I think that's so needed. You know, men don't get cared for. And I think that that's, you're right. If, if they're willing to go to IVF, like what if you could get them right then and there? My God, what if you could get them before that? <laughs>
1: Right, so before that, it's almost impossible, but because they're they're basically taken care of by their partners. But I, I, am, you know, my bigger mission in life is not cure infertility; it's to have men live longer. You know, the the stark fact and the stark truth in America is that the richest man in America lives five to seven years less than or shorter lifespan than the poorest woman. So um. they are certainly underserved for a variety of reasons. Some of it self inflicted. Some of it inflicted on them, some of it's the provider cultural norms, and but it is a shame that men just have such a short lifespan in America, and regardless of their socioeconomic status. And it's a little bit about the immortality complex, but I'm my attitude is, let's find a biomarker and then let's engage men, because they love numbers, right? So if you throw them a number, they'll try to fix it, right? They'll, they'll try to get, I'm going to get that number better, and they'll do things, so you got to get them engaged. And if you don't show your personality and you don't commit yourself to them to walk the walk, you're not going to get them. They they have to trust you.
0: Well, I, I love your blog for that. I send men to it all the time. Or I, I tell wives just to have their husbands go there. Turek on Men's Health. Because it's, you know, like you speak, it's it's a lot of information in a short time. Like you get to the point. <laughs> here, here it is.
1: Nuggets. I call them nuggets. Yeah. Nuggets, right? I'm aiming at guys. It's 80% read by women, but I I want men to just start the blog and then not, they have to finish it. They can't put it down. That's the idea because again, you only have one shot. So you have to have a hook. It's not written like other blogs. You don't answer the question right away. You bring up some social situation where everyone finds themselves and somehow bring it down to their health.
0: No, it's definitely interesting in that way for sure. So when I you're a pretty lighthearted physician, right? You've got a, a good sense of humor and connection. But in one of the years in the symposium I heard you talk about advanced paternal age and the sobering reality of it. And it really made me tune in because I had observed and kind of suspected that there was some advanced paternal age problems in couples in my clinic, but I really didn't have any proof of it. And, you know, this kind of urban myth, you know, another myth that males can be fathers at any age, which, you know, they can. There's been some very old fathers in the course of history. But your work is, you know, around the epigenetics and everything is kind of saying, hey, there are some issues with advanced paternal age. And I think that that was really illuminating, especially even some of it that pointed and said, hey, you know, like annual is not always the cause of the woman. There are some issues with advancing age in men, right?
1: Absolutely. So we actually just published a nice review in a Journal of Assisted Reproductive Genetics called Reproductive Genetics in the Aging Male, and it'll be available open access probably in a couple months. Um, Alex Yatschenko, Y-A-T-Z Yatschenko, is a geneticist at University of Pittsburgh who co-authored it with me and it's really the most update review on this topic and it's I think it's pretty legible it talks about epigenetics and all the newest stuff to the month so it'll be available open access if you search my name on Google it, it should come up in about three months uh, it's pretty dense reading but it's uh, I think it's I think it's concise so the issue is the, the most interesting thing to me is that advanced paternal age never existed until about 1960, two generations ago, there was no such thing as advanced paternal age because we didn't live that long. So it's a recent problem to have an advanced paternal age issue. And a lot of the problems that we're noticing are rising among offspring is recent, like autism. We think schizophrenia, bipolar, things like that seem to be going up increasingly. And so there's, there have been associative studies trying to look at epidemiologically the relationship and there have been correlations between age and neurodegenerative diseases and offspring. So bipolar, autism, schizophrenia, dyslexia. And there's some correlations showing up, but no biological basis. And it looks like it might be epigenetic. So the kinds of things you see in advanced paternal age. So, so what is advanced paternal age? That was the biggest argument on the paper with the reviewers and the editors. It's what what's the definition? And the answer is there isn't really one. Remember, it's a new field. Because in 1900, we lived 38 years on average. In 1950, we lived 50 to 60 years. 1980, we lived 75 years, right? So right. <laughs> very few people 50 to 100 years ago or, or older had any kids at age 40. I mean, the average age of an American male at first child or first paternity is 30 now. It used to be 26, about a uh, generation ago. Um, so that's pretty significant. That's a 10-20% increase in age. So I think the the issues are new and they're large and we don't we're just learning what they are, but as men age the meiotic machinery that makes sperm tends to fail. So you spin out in this manigonal stem cell in the testicle that's the driver of all sperm you spin out. You you divide that thing once a year for thirteen years. You hit puberty, and then you are doing it ten or fifteen times a year. So you've you've spooled up the problem, and then at, by the age of sixty, the the machinery is getting old, and the quality control is getting a little sparse. And so, advanced paternal age forty would be the kind of a general definition. Fifty for sure, and and that's you know that's what we're talking about, sort of age fifty and beyond. And if you compare 25 to 50 year old men, you'll see that there's more miscarriages, there's more early fetal deaths, there's about one, a little over 10, 20% more birth defects, um, congenital birth defects. And if you go to 60, uh, think of it as a hockey stick-shaped curve. It's sort of flat for a while, and then it starts rising dramatically like the blade of a hockey stick. And that probably, that position where it changes, that flexion point, is probably around age 60, uh, where it really starts to go up dramatically. And DNA fragmentation is a classic age-related issue. It's about 3% per year increase over age 40. So... Talking three times 10 is 30% per decade or 20% per decade change in sperm DNA fragmentation just because of age. Epigenetically, it changes dramatically. Great study by the Utah group. Doug Carroll took men who had bank sperm in their 20s, 30s, and then again got a sample in their 40s, 50s. And, sh- and so they had these samples that are about 17, 20 years apart. And they looked at the epigenetic profile, and there was a dramatic shift. In the, in the epigenetic marks on sperm in the same, same men's samples over age, and they all tended to group around the neurodegenerative diseases. So that means you would expect the expression of genes around the diseases we talked about to be changed and altered. And so it's, again, kind of coming all together. Chromosomally, men don't change that much. Uh, that's not one of the systems that fails, but yet trisomy 18 and Kleinfelter syndrome, XY, are two of the kind of hot spots in men that could contribute to issues with kids later in life. And the biggest and well known, most well known, are single gene mutations. So when women age, they have chromosomal issues, and those are detectable on prenatal testing, and they're also usually lethal, causing miscarriages. So that's good, I guess, that they're lethal. It's it's a uh, quality checkpoints um, in men. There are single gene mutations, so they're just little nicks in the DNA that tend to pass through quality control mechanisms and persist, and come out in an offspring. And they're the source of I would call highly disfiguring and rare diseases like retinoblastoma, tuber sclerosis, Lushnian syndrome, lots of odd sort of diseases. And luckily, they don't. They're not that frequent. They're more frequent in older men. But they're not that frequent in general. So this stuff, if you look at it carefully, is very, very alarming. And right now we consider about 20% of autism appears to be paternal age related. Not all of it. I mean, that's probably a conservative number based on the best science, but it's definitely related. And I always tell men, because when I some men bank their sperm, you know, while they're in their forties or thirties. Because there's no relationship in the future, near future, and they want to know what they're headed for. And you give them this data and they usually bank their sperm. Um, but I would say, though, that to put it in perspective, you, if you just ask men, if you have a child with a partner, do you know what the birth defect rate is? You know, the chance of having a birth defect in that baby is, you know, all comers, all ages. And they usually say, no, they don't know. And it's so it's not on the radar. And, I, and it, the answer is about 3%. There's a 3% chance. So men usually don't aren't too alarmed below 5%. Once you start getting 5%, 10%, they start taking notice. It's just a risk aversion thing. But that's about the same rate you're seeing with the combination of issues with men with age. It goes from less than 1% to about 3%. So it runs in the same order of magnitude as birth defects in general. And so I leave them with that statement because that puts it all in perspective and then they can decide whether they need to worry about it or not. There's nothing you can test for with these issues. So the problem is you can't do prenatal testing easily. There are no genes identified for these conditions right now. And it's really, it's it's an open risk. It's an open-faced risk. And the other thing is, these are sometimes diseases in adult offspring. So you won't even see them at birth Or early on, you have to wait for a lot of them three to five years and sometimes up to, to, you know, beyond puberty to see any issues. So it's a concern and it's a new it's a new issue. So how you handle it, no one's ever dealt with it before in history.
0: It is a lot to make you think about our biology and what happens as we age, for sure. So you bring up what happens later, in, in the offspring, and things that you may not even see until much later, and you know this kind of makes me think about when I was first learning about reproduction in grad school and the concept of uh, ICSI's of the intracytoplasmic sperm injection, where you know the the sperm is selected and put into the egg during IVF, and I. I remember just kind of being somewhat horrified, like, oh my God, we're taking natural selection out of the process. And is this a good idea? Like, do we really... Know better, and you know, and now ten years later, I have you know these walking, talking children that are a product of IXYS that probably wouldn't be here without it, and they're seemingly healthy. But sometimes I wonder about like the long term implications on their health and their ability to reproduce. And do we have any data on that? Because IXYS hasn't really been around that long, right?
1: Right, there's not much, but it, it was an interesting play. It was when I first entered the field in the early 90s. You know, Jean Pierre Palermo and in Belgium, who's now at Cornell, started it. And I sat uh, with him in 1998 at a play at the ASRM in San Francisco called, I forgot what it was called, but it was about a woman who was in the lab and got some sperm and got her own eggs out and was ixing her own eggs. And it was just everything that can go wrong with the technique it was done by Carl DiGirassi, uh an immaculate misconception. I think it was called the play. It was premiered at the ASRM in 1998. And I sat with the inventor of Ixie at, at the thing and it was pretty interesting, but you know, it was an accident. So there was no science behind Ixie someone. Piero, John Piero had basically in Belgium been doing, trying to get sperm closer to eggs for male factor issues, putting them between the egg and the egg shell in subsona insertion, and that wasn't working well. And then he made a mistake, and he stabbed the egg. Or maybe he said he made a mistake, but maybe he did intentionally. But he did it four times. And then he just he just watched those, and they fertilized. And then he told von um, that what he had done and that they'd gone forward. And he said, we're going to have to follow this carefully. So they have tracked their ICSI kids in Belgium ever since day one And, you know, there's a lot of debate about the health because you are removing barriers to natural selection. And I had a conference at a Resolve meeting where I took all the embryologists from the major programs in San Francisco. I had them in a panel session with a microphone in front of each of them. And the audience was patients. And I said, meet the embryologists because patients want to know who's selecting my sperm. Who's selecting that sperm? What kind of person Selecting my sperm, what do they believe in? What are they? You would imagine the questions these guys got about you know, do you have kids? What do you are you religious? You know, (laughs) it's interesting how you culturally it's a big change, right? And then, of course, scientifically, what does it all mean? And you are removing barriers, but a couple things impressed me that sperm that things still work pretty much the same, even by removing those barriers, there's so much quality control in the process, that it's still quite intact. And you can debate whether there are higher birth defect rates with ICSI, but there probably is, but it's probably very small. So on a point of 0.1, 0.2% increase, there's probably some conditions that are more likely to occur that are very rare, imprinting disorders and things like that. But again, very rare. And we don't know about the unnatural environment of, of ICSI because you have to be under a microscope with light, and neither of our gametes normally see any light. So there can be epigenetic alterations, and there's from feeling from Paolo Ronaldo's research at UCSF that there might be epigenetic alterations going on to the culture medium is a little unnatural, that kind of stuff. So sort of much some of that IVF. But it's constant. So the best data out of Belgium recently is men, couples in whom there's male factor with low sperm counts, they now have the sperm counts of the sons, and only about 50 or 60 couples. So they had ivf for low sperm counts, have children, and the boys are now men, and the men have low sperm counts. So it looks like a lot of the male low sperm counts in men might be genetic or epigenetic, and it's being passed on. That's the idea a lot of it's being passed on, whether you can define the genetics or not. But I've been also impressed on how little is coming, how little difference we see. For instance, I have cancer survivors with 20 sperm in their testicle after chemotherapy and published in bone marrow transplant literature, some of the most extreme cases of being treated and cured for cancer. And they have a couple of sperm and you know, those sperm were in testicles that were exposed to lots of chemo and radiation. And those kids have no, you know, no issues. And, and it's pretty impressive, but I think, you, of course, long-term follow-up is still needed. One of the biggest problems of all these studies is birth defect rates. Birth defects are defined differently in, in different countries. Some of them are defined as something needing a surgery to fix. Some are defined as, you know, an abnormal look. So it, it's hard to compare. It's apples and oranges among groups. So you'll see conflicting data. And we know nothing about cancer risk later in life, um, which is of some concern. So it is a bit interesting. I, I, I feel the same way as you do, and still. And I, I'm working with Uktan Demerci, who's a Stanford professor. And we just published a paper on using a chip that will allow the sperm to swim under a microfluidic chip to imitate the cervical path that they take going through the cervix. There's grooves in the human cervix. And only really sperm can make it through that cervix. Like an obstacle course, so we're creating an obstacle course like it, and we're comparing the integrity, build quality of sperm before and after running that the, the gauntlet there, and we're finding that they are um, they're better looking, better moving, certainly better looking morphology. They have four to five fold less fragmentation, and they have they have an epigenetic profile that's altered, probably better favorably. So it looks like we're able to help reproduce what sperm have to go through to get fertilized an egg. And when I first saw his data, he's a fluid physicist who just loves sperm because they have motors on them, right? They're little particles with motors on them. And he was publishing physics journals. And I read these things and I said, this guy's such a kook. I mean, he's publishing all this fluid physics with sperm. And I called him up and got and met him and i said, he's so much fun. But um, I said, Uk-tan, I said, you know what you're doing here? You're reproducing the cervical path. And then I said, this is a path that has been preserved in mammalian species, land and sea, for a million years. So, for a million years, sperm have had to do this work to get to the egg. They don't, the egg just doesn't sit at the cervix. And as soon as you make it through the cervix, you're in, or even closer. You have to go in a human six, eight inches, which is like crossing an ocean. And that's why, you know, 40 million start and 100 make it but there's something about the path. And I said, and you've, you're making the path. And I said, I need to be a part of this and I need to help out. So he had me write the introduction to the paper about the reservation of the, you know, the cervical path issue, the uterine path issue for a million years. So I think they're what I'm comfortable. Now they have a product. Um, It's a, it's a fertile chip. It's available in Europe. It's now FDA approved in America as of last month. So another disclosure, I'm part of that company called DXNOW. And they named it the Zymot chip, Z-Y-M-O-T. Horrible name. I'm going to get it changed. (laughs) But it's a chip that's literally a microscope slide. And you put sperm on one end, you drop it in, there's no, no processing. And you pick it up at the other end 20 minutes later by the clock. And you should have a sperm that is more naturally selected than if an embryologist did it you know, at 9am with a cup of coffee in the other hand.
0: I've got a name change for you. I think that you have created the Darwinian obstacle course. Yes, that's
1: right. <laughs> that's the idea. But you know, it's been bothering me for 20 years, maybe you for 10 or five, but it's always been a little, I'm, I'm a little bit of a Darwinian, but not really, but I'm also religious, so it's complicated. But
0: Right. Oh, very much so. Yes. Well, and like I said, you know, the it's just something I wonder. And now we're seeing it. And like you, you're saying that there's really not, yes, they're passing on this the low sperm count. But to me, that's just information of like, hey, son, you might want to freeze your sperm earlier before you have this, you know, this steep increase in, in DNA fragmentation on top of the low sperm count, right?
1: That's right. Because those things are probably occurring in all men. It may be exaggerated in men with abnormal semen analysis. We don't know. Yes. It's the kind of science I hoped the field had had when I joined it, but now it's happening. And I'm glad to be a part of the hard science coming out because it has more relevance than ever, I think. You know, if we're, I mean, maybe the treatment for ICSI is not to use it. Maybe just go to IVF, right? Maybe IVF, the worry is that it'll fail to fertilize, but we're not seeing that. So the whole, even Jamie Griffo's work from NYU looking at if you don't use morphology, which has been a classic reason to do ICSI. Poor morphology means poor fertilization with IVF. So go to ICSI and avoid the problem. If you just don't use that criteria and six in, without looking at morphology, the failure to fertilize rate is 101 and 250. So it becomes almost noise. Huh. So I don't think that criteria matters. And there's one group at San Francisco that stopped using it and they're doing Instead of 70, 75 percent ICSI nationally, they're doing about forty to forty five percent. They don't see failure to fertilize. They don't see that issue at all. So I think there's going to be a bold move to keep it more natural and IVF is you know inseminating eggs and sperm and let them do let them do what they normally do. Um, it's not the cervical path, but it's still a lot of the process. Um, so I like that. I, I like that concept of maybe going backward a little bit.
0: Yeah. Just, you know, we don't know what we know until we know it. And your research is helping us to know those things. And I mean, that chip, that's like the golden ratio, basically. If all mammals have that ratio of that six inch path that we have as humans to the cervix, right? You've just kind of recreated that. Yeah. That's amazing.
1: Yeah, if you look at, if you do research, I mean, we, we did research on the path itself and the micro grooves and stuff like that. And he put obstacles in the way. And there was this video that was so telling. I haven't shown it nationally yet, but, and he's a mathematician. So he calculated in fluid physics, if you put pillars in the way, you put obstacles in the way at a certain distance. If you take a normal shaped sperm, morphologically normal sperm, and put it through this obstacle course, it sails through. So it's just on fluid physics principles, a nicely shaped sperm sails through. If you put it, a sperm that has a bent neck or a big head, it'll never make it. So what's interesting is I've not been a big believer in sperm shape as a driver of sperm health, right? A book by its cover. But I am totally convinced that sperm morphology matters in the path. Because if it's aerodynamically, brilliantly shaped, it'll do better. So in the real world, Morphology probably matters to success with intercourse and success with IUI because of shape not because of nuclear material Uh, but once you get to the so you know the more important thing with ICSI is nuclear material because shape doesn't matter that much.
0: It it is and that's such a clarification I think that people need to understand about you know their sperm analysis and then what plans you have going forward right so if you want to do all natural but you've got morphology issues then you know maybe there is an issue especially if you combine that with like cervical mucus production issues where there's not even the the cervical mucus there to help those sperm get that six inches of the way
1: right and i think you know you're 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 talking at the edge of of theoretical considerations here because the study just came out and these are just my preemptive thoughts about it so i don't think you can say anything yet but if you see these videos you're going to say even the mathematical experimental videos so they can he has you know videos of mathematically what would happen based on the sperm shape as it goes through the course. And then he has the actual, what happens to sperm that are real sperm, and they're identical. So his mathematical modeling is identical to reality. So I know it's true, uh, but it's just fascinating because it gave morphology new meaning to me. It actually does matter because if you're not absolutely perfectly shaped sperm, at least from a fluid dynamics point of view, you're probably not going to make it.
0: Well. I have to say, this is one of the things I love about you. You publish all this research and you're involved in it, yet you are very careful to say what is theory still and what is th- what is fact, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, I have a blog on when does fact become fact, right? It all starts out as theory, and we published a paper about the semen analysis being a biomarker for prostate cancer and testis cancer 10 years ago. And, you know, it was an epidemiologic study and it was large and it was very prominent. It was published in a general medical journal that, you know, men who are infertile have higher rates of cancer later in life if they have low sperm counts. It was based on molecular biology data and we went straight to epidemiology, which is like the opposite end of the spectrum. And it was done by my fellow Tom Walsh, who's an epidemiologist and, and a urologist at University of Washington. And, you know, it took 10 years and now I believe it's true. I mean, even though I did the paper because it's epidemiology, but enough people have reproduced it. And the government is now putting grants out to study the issue, uh, which is, a for me, a bucket list thing because it, you know, being at the meeting where we we're talking about it in NIH and they're saying Dr. Turek inspired this meeting. And I'm like, oh, that's nice. And it's, so it's a very nice compliment. But I think it takes time for theory to become fact. And this is now theory. I think, it, you know, it's it's always that way in science. It could be a, a disrupted at any point. But I think there's enough cumulative evidence looking at the biomarker concept and fertility that it's true. I don't know if there's enough evidence that what I'm saying today is true about sperm. But
0: Well, I'm glad you brought that up because that ties into our title is IVF Good for Men's Health because I do believe you know, I kind of look at reproduction and fertility issues. This is what was most fascinating to me. I didn't mean to choose this as a specialty, but it's kind of like almost the ultimate disease, right? If we're put here to eat, sleep, and procreate, and there's an issue with that, what else could that tell us about our health, right? Especially around chronic disease and Yep. So the fact that now this work is being used to kind of show, you know, again, not fact, but some correlation with later stage cancer being an issue, I, I think is huge because so many men don't want to do that sperm analysis. But if you can put it in, in statistics where you can say, hey, this can actually show you how healthy you are inside.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, every day on an everyday level, if I see a guy with a normal semen analysis, I know some things are true. He can't be doing too much bad because it would lower his sperm count. So, so he's living a good life, probably. He's, you know, probably got a normal testosterone level because you can't really generate, you can't bloom a plant without enough water. So he's got the right combination. So you can say pretty good things. And I so knowing what I know, I did a study where men came in and they had normal sperm counts, and the woman had no issues, and they were infertile, and they were unexplained. And I said at the end of the visit, uh, based on my complete evaluation, that I thought he was cleared. And I said, I think you're cleared. I don't think you are part of the problem. And that's based on everything I know. And so most of those couples went home and went online and said, Tara couldn't figure out what was wrong with us. And I got a little upset with that because I didn't say that. I said, honestly, I think um, look harder elsewhere. I mean, I don't take care of women and I don't make recommendations, but I said, look into the partner a little bit more and and then you'll probably have to go down the path of the technology or, or do other alternatives. But I think you're doing great, and I think you're fine. So they said that, and I said, yeah, that's not what I said. So I put a little, I put my back into it and I got USC involved, a resident USC. And a year after I met them, I called, I had this resident call them all up in an IRB, you know, a study. And I had them, I had them ask a couple, five questions. How did it go last year? Dr. Turek told you to try harder and this and that. Now these guys had seals, and they were doing things and they had toxins and I gave them advice about stuff. I did not give them a pill. I did not operate on the varicoceles. I just advised and said, you know, try this and, and, you know, maybe an antioxidant supplement, et cetera. So it wasn't no care, but it was just basically advice. And I thought they were doing fine. And so to my surprise, 65% of those couples conceived naturally the year after I met them. Wow. So they followed, they followed the rule. And these are 35 year old women for the year and a half of infertility, and 65% conceived naturally, another 20% conceived with IUI or IVF. So at the end of the year, 85% had kids or had pregnancies ongoing. And I said, so it's true. I mean, basically what I said was true. So I'm writing this up as a paper, and I'm not writing it as, "See, I told you I was right. I'm writing it as a lifestyle paper. So all I did really was give lifestyle advice.
0: That's amazing. Somebody needs to show that in the literature for sure.
1: Yeah, that's going to be hard to publish because it's it's hard to publish when you're most effective when you don't do anything as a doctor. Or if a, I'm on a lot of journals, I'm an associate editor of two, I review for 20. And honestly, I know it's not going to be a big hit. It's not a controlled trial. It's not this, it's not that. But if you look at what a doctor is best at doing, sometimes it's just holding your hand, sitting there and being at your side and walking the walk with a little more knowledge and giving you good advice. I mean, that's... Five hundred years ago, that's what doctors did. And it may have today, because if you if they're paying the money to see you and you're telling them you gotta eat better, you gotta stop smoking, you've got to cut down your alcohol, and you gotta maybe stop these pills, take an antioxidant supplement. Maybe it was just the antioxidant supplement, who knows? But that's a tremendous pregnancy rate. And that told me until I'm trying to publish the papers, you know, a lot of unexplained infertility can be cleared, men can be cleared of it by a simple evaluation in the office, one one visit.
0: I think that's great. And I, I, it's amazing that you're doing telehealth. I think that's just going to open it up to even more uh, men. So, you know, if you're listening to this and you've been trying to get your your male partner in to be seen, you know, he makes it as easy as possible. He can do it at home sona test, You can see you via Skype or phone. Uh, I think that's incredible. There's going to be some hopefully some big changes in the ways that males perceive getting a sperm analysis and getting checked out and, and hopefully kind of treating it like socialized countries where they do it in the beginning. You know, Correct. you can put a dollar amount to it, then, then they're more, more apt to go, right? Right.
1: And I think it's a lot cheaper to see a man once and get it all done. I mean, I like to package it so that, so I offer basically free calls for couples to see if it's a good fit. And then you can get the background stuff and then have them come in and have the first and last visit. And everyone thinks, well, then that's it. I'm all done with him. No, that's the start of the care. I mean, my care is all telehealth. So I want, I'm want i with you to the kid, but you don't have to come see me. But if you want my opinion about stuff or you, you know, you're taking something new, is this medication safe? Those are really good questions. Someone should answer those questions. I just got diagnosed with this. This is what I'm on. Is this safe for... I've changed so many blood pressure medications from calcium channel blockers to other things. And bam, pregnancies occur. It's so, you know, that's the way you have to deal with men. You have to, they're not women. They're not that good about care in general. And it's a cultural shift and you have to, I think you have to adjust to the way they need their care, not trying to treat them like everyone else and, you know, having them weight. Two out, having them travel across two bridges in two hours to get there, and then for a fifteen-minute visit for which you're twenty minutes late, it's not worth it. It's not the way to do it. No, that you're hitting productivity, you're making them weak where they can it shouldn't be weak, and it's a, it's already a problem that's embarrassing, and then they have to explain it. And so I just work with the organism the way it is. That's the idea: is work with the organism, work with what you have.
0: I love that, and I have one more question for you. You mentioned that you don't always treat varicoceles surgically. So can you explain to our listeners what the prevalence is of those, the cause, and, and how they're treated?
1: Yes, varicoceles are the most common diagnosis in infertility. It's probably 40% of men who are trying to have their first child and then unca not and it's up to 60 to 80% of men who are trying to have a second child and having trouble. And um, there are a bag of veins in in the scrotum, and they occurred as a result of us standing up in, in, in evolution. So I think the blog is called What Happened When We Stood Up. Yes. Probably the worst thing that men could have done in life was to stand up. Because the varicocele is basically drainage of the testicle, the blood supplied to the body. And if you stand up, it goes uphill and you fight in gravity and the veins aren't made for it. So they tend to go backwards and the blood goes the wrong way. And unfortunately, that blood from the body going down to the testicle the wrong way is warmer. And that heats up testicles like a hot tub. And I, know, I did the hot tub study and I know how sensitive testicles are to hot to heat. But like I said in the beginning, you know, three days a week for a month, you can be zero. So you can really turn things off. And so it heats up the testicle, affects both sides, and causes probably the largest single correctable cause of male infertility. But they're found in 15% of high school athletes. So it's also a disease of athletic young people, thin people. So that's Also important. And so some of them are pathologic and some of them aren't. And you just, we don't have a good test to know which is which right now. Epigenetics may be a test down the line, but it'd be nice to have a a way to figure out in whom it's a problem. I used metabolomics initially. I was looking at metabolomics of the testicle in a grant. 20 years ago from that age but my co-investigator took all my money and got no data out of it so i was kind of burned by that but that would have been a way to put them in a scanner and see if there's a certain decrease in function of the testicles that between side to side that might mean there's there's relevance and then and then fix it and then scan them again and get recovery so but right now if you fix it you can either fix it non-surgically with radiology or you can fix it surgically with microsurgery It's probably the best way Um, it's an hour of surgery it's pretty quick two or three pain pills down for a weekend back to work on monday on a friday case and you just tie off the veins so it doesn't do that anymore sometimes men are, are having discomfort feel better that's a pretty high rate and about 70% of the time, you'll get improvement in semen analysis. And in a primary and infertile couple, it'll probably be around a 45% pregnancy rate over the next year naturally.
0: That's amazing, all because they just got checked.
1: Right. So that's the thing that I find when acupuncturists see patients and have screened everything else in their lifestyle and have perfected them as best they can be, that's what I find. I find a lot more And I have to figure out, I'm going to work with a with a postdoc on, or a doctoral student on how to do that study. Patients referred from IVF programs versus patients referred from acupuncturists. What's the rate of finding uh, correctable causes of infertility in men? I think it's going to be much higher.
0: Awesome. I can't wait to read that and see the video on the mathematics of the fluid of the sperm. <laughs> yeah i'm such a nerd <laughs> that's great it's
1: the coolest video it is it, it changed my life to see that
0: okay well i will definitely be stalking your blog looking for that then so i can link it to these show notes which is ladypotions.com forward slash episode 30 so people can find you at turk on for your blog work they can find you uh, at turkclinic.com if they want to schedule something and uh, they can also get that test on Episona.com. And if you're in the San Francisco Bay, you're also part of a free clinic called Clinic by the Bay. Yes.
1: Yes. We just had our fundraiser yesterday. It was a Fiesta themed <laughs> and raised $200,000 for a free clinic for the working poor. It's called Clinic by the Bay. Love the donations on Facebook or social. It's fabulous. We take care of the working uninsured, uh, the hardworking people who can't afford insurance in San Francisco. Immigrants, Catholic charities, everything's free. It's fabulous. It's, it's not fertility. It's general medical care.
0: That's amazing. And so they can donate to you on Facebook. And then you're also doing a Facebook Live uh, covering uh, semen analysis a little bit more in depth, right? They can find that on your Facebook.
1: Yeah, a whole series on Facebook Live weekly.
0: Awesome. Well, I'm not going to keep you any longer. I'm so grateful to you. I know you are a busy, busy man. All right. Well, thank you so much. And
1: bet, Hillary.
0: I'm sure our listeners will enjoy it. Thank you.
1: And you doing your good work.
0: So there you have it. IVF could be the best thing for your man's health if it's what actually gets him to the doctor to be evaluated. But what if you could save a ton of money and heartache by being evaluated by a holistic physician at the beginning of your fertility journey? Remember, we are more than our lab test values and our DNA. We are the product of what we think, what we eat, what we are exposed to, even the exposure of the care of our physicians. If you'd like to work together, Find me over at ladypotions.com and click on the Work With Me tab to see options that are currently available. Bye for now.